Welcome to a Longer Table podcast, a space for real and sometimes hard conversations that will often challenge your perspective and always empower you to pull up more seats around your own table. I'm your host, Amanda Carpenter. Let's dive in. Pull up a seat because today I have Hannah, a new friend of mine on the podcast. Hannah, welcome to a Longer Table. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to chat about your story. I want to start with, because people can't see you, and I think this is so important in your story, you're biracial. Are you, was your mom white and your dad black? Or Yeah, my mom, uh, my birth mother was white and my birth father was black. Okay. And you were adopted at how old? I was adopted at three months old. Okay. Tell us a little bit about that adoption story. If you don't mind, like what were you adopted through foster care? Who adopted you? What was your upbringing? Like I was not adopted out of foster care. It was a private adoption. I did spend the three months that I was, you know, not adopted in a foster home, but I wasn't, it wasn't through foster care or I had like a temporary foster home situation. Um, but yeah, it was a private adoption. My birth mother chose my parents. Um, and I think that there must have been just like there. I knew that there was an issue with jurisdiction. My mom told me like they had I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and they had gotten somebody who only was like licensed to do adoption in Kansas City, Kansas. And so they had like some issues there. Or I don't it was just a weird failure on the I was the first baby adopted out of my adoption agency. So I know that there was a lot of like navigating new territory. Um so that's, that's that, I guess. I don't know how important that is, but, um, uh, I was, yeah, adopted at three months by my parents who were white. I have an elder brother who's also, um, transnationally adopted from Seoul, South Korea. Um, and I know that when my birth mother chose my parents, a big determining factor for why she chose them was because they had already transracially adopted because she knew I wasn't going to be the only, um, person of color in my household. So I appreciate her for that. Um, And my upbringing, um, again, I had my eldest brother. I have a middle brother who's my parents' biological, my adoptive parents' biological son. Um, And then me, so I was the baby. And And the only girl. And the only girl, yes. So I was, was, you know, fairly spoiled um, and definitely was a daddy's girl. Um, and yeah, I definitely have a really close relationship with my adopted father still. Um, but yeah, childhood for me was actually really a good time. It was from what I remember, like there were hard things about it and we'll, I'll talk more about that. But for the most part, when I was a young child, I have a a lot of really fond memories of like playing with friends and being outside and playing in dirt and all, you know, we lived by a cornfield. So I used to run in the cornfield and anyway, lots of good memories. Um, things started to change when I got, um, me, my parents moved, um, my childhood best friend who I'd known since I was five, we moved away from that house. Um, and we moved to a more rural part of the town that I was living in. Um, I grew up in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, which is a very small, very white, very conservative, very red part of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Um, but where I was living before, I don't know if it was more liberal or not, or more diverse or not, maybe a little bit, I don't know. But where we moved to was a lot more rural, even more conservative, even more red. Um, And so 
I did notice when I got to third grade, that was when I moved, I did notice like there was some changes in the attitude that I was receiving from kids. Um, I felt some of that in my previous schools, but it just seemed heightened. And maybe it's because I was at a more like, in third grade, you're starting to become more aware of like what's going on around you um, as well. Totally. So that's when things started to get hard when I, when I um, moved there. And also there was a lot of changes and that was just hard. And then it was in fifth grade where I was called the M word for the first time um, by one of my classmates. Um, and then it just kind of just, I don't know if that was what kickstarted it, but I just, um, I was keenly aware of like, I was being treated different. Um, and it was because of my race Mm. Um, and it was little things like that was a bigger incident, but I had little things of like liking boys and them not liking me back and them saying it was because of the way that I looked or, um, just kind of a lot of like trial, you know, putting yourself out there and people, um, denying you. Uh, and I just started to feel more and more, uh, disconnected from my peers. Um, by the time I was in middle school, I just kind of felt like a lot of my childhood relationships were not that, you know, middle school's hard already. Oh, middle school's the worst. It's terrible. We're all just terrible. And then put on top of that, the fact that you're like one of three black girls, it's hard. And then, um, high school, it really just, it just was just like mounding on top of each other, a bunch of small little incidents that just like brew inside of you. And, um, I just got more and more, I would say by the time I was in high school, I was depressed. Um, I had some other things happen to me. Like when I was a junior, I was sexually assaulted. And so like, there was just a bunch of things happening, but I think that all of it kind of coincides. Um, and parts of the reasons why I think that I was not to blame myself for my sexual assault, not doing that, but basically like, I think that some of the attention seeking behaviors that I was exhibiting were because I was really seeking attention um, and affection from people who number one looked like me and, uh, and who I, yeah, who would like understand where I was coming from. So I was like so desperate for black male attention that I would put myself in very dangerous situations with strangers, you know? Um, But that was simply because I was so incredibly desperate for that connection. Again, not blaming myself for what happened to me because that's not what I'm saying at all. And that's, if that's what you did or anyone did out there, all of those decisions don't make somebody violate you. Correct. Um, I love that you include that. Yeah, but at the same time, I do know that maybe if I had some more friends who look like me or some more potential romantic partners in my school who look like me, uh, I maybe wouldn't have been in such vulnerable situations, if that Mm. makes sense. Yeah. So this is great because I am curious. My next question was really, what could your parents have done differently or better? Like, do you think that they had, they had you around more people who looked like you and you had black males, females, you know, just adults that were key, that could play a key role in your life that you might not have exhibited that attention seeking behavior 
did, did you know, I'm, I'm just thinking like from my perspective, you know, I'm a foster parent who has black and brown children in my care. And we not only try to do our best to authentically keep our kids around our black and brown friends, but also they have books that the characters look like them. We watch TV shows that are primarily black and brown people that are sent that are the center of the story, not just like a, a little, um, what do they call that? Like a token black person or whatever. Yeah. So anyways, I guess I'm, I want to continue hearing your story and I'm curious for people like me, what could your parents have done differently or better so that I might not make the same mistakes? (laughs) Yeah. Um, one of my biggest pieces of uh, uh, criticism for my parents and for a lot of white adoptive parents uh, and and foster parents and anyone who's transracially, you know, parenting essentially is, um, especially black children is, you know, I grew up again in a small, very small, very white, very white town. I live right now 30 minutes from that town. And my son's school is like over 70% children of color. Mm. And so it's like, mom and dad, we really couldn't have bought a house 30 minutes away. And you're, you know, you couldn't have inconvenienced yourself for that commute, you know? And so that's something that I think if we're being really, really real. Yes. A lot of times white people are afraid of brown and black communities. We don't want to raise our kids there because they're unsafe or because blah, 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 or the news or the crime or, you know, but it, it really still hurts my heart that my parents didn't even consider that as an option. Mm. Right. Um, And so my biggest, one of my biggest things that you can do is always relocate, (laughs) relocate. I know that that's not always an option for everyone, but I I think especially for transracial children, they're not getting what's normally just going to be taught to them by a brown brown or black parent. Um, Like my parent, my children are learning things by simply watching me, right? I, there are things that I teach them uh, intentionally. Like I sit them down and I say this, this, you know, um, if it's talking about dealing with the police or if it's talking about, you know, school or whatever, there are things that I sit down, but there are also things that I do without thinking about it that they're watching. Right. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that I had a pastor say uh, a while back that I really liked was like a lot of what our kids learn is caught, not taught. Right. It's stuff mm, that I like that caught, not taught. Yeah. So basically like, our, and I'm sure you can relate that too. Like a lot of things that we learned from our parents are not things that they sat down and had a conversation with about, about. It's we saw them doing it. And so that's why I think it's so important that ch- transracial um, children grow up in diverse communities because they need to be catching that stuff. You you can be the best, most educated white person in the entire world and sit them down and be intentional and read the books and watch the movies. But you're still, there's still so much that they're losing. Um, and that's, you know, something that you, there has to be some kind of supplement, uh, for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Well, and I'm curious too, like, I wonder if you felt like you were losing or stripped of your blackness growing up in an all white community. And so my husband and I live in Pilsen, which is a part of Chicago. That's primarily Latinx, but, um, and, and being that we are a foster family, we can't obviously relocate. Uh, that's something that we would consider if we adopt children of color, but right now we foster to reunify. So that's not on the table, but excuse me, but how can I, are there any other specific ways that I can ensure I don't strip my black children of their blackness? And how have you seen white people doing this intentionally or not? Yeah. 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 So, um, the thing, okay. With this question, I feel like, I don't know if I like the language in this question, just because I feel like you can't strip a black person of their blackness. Mm. Um, if you're black, you're black. When you walk down the street, you're black. It doesn't, um, there's nothing that a white parent could do to strip their child of their blackness. Now, if the question is, how can I not whitewash my black child or how can I not weaponize my whiteness to the effect that it makes my black child be emotionally and psychologically damaged? Yes, I can answer that question. Okay. That's the question I'm trying to ask. Thank you. I know that is, but I think that that's something that like, we need to get rid of that because we can think that we're stripping our child of our blackness, but when they walk out of the door, they're still black. They're still black. And they might. And the thing that I see is the psychological and emotional damage that makes them feel like they're not. And then we have a bunch of other dangerous things happening. Okay. So Let's talk about that. So um, the first thing, because I made that point, is that language is important. Language is so important. Um, and the example I thought of with this was like, let's 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 say that your child experiences something that's racist, right? Mm-hmm. And they're they're at school, and their teacher accuses them of stealing. Mm-hmm. And um, they say, "Mommy, I didn't do this. Why is this teacher doing this to me?" One thing that I hear a lot of white people or white adoptive parents or white, you know, foster parents say is like, it's because of, it's because you're black. And no, Mm. it's not because they're black. It's because that white person was racist. And my, I think that black people, I guess what I'm trying to say is like the language there is important, right? Black people, because they're black, don't deserve to be treated inhumanely. Right. Right. And that phrasing abdicates the white person who was racist. It abdicates them from the guilt, you know, of doing that racist act. So no, it's not because they're black. It's because that white person chose to discriminate against you. Um, It shifts the blame. Yeah, it shifts the blame. Basically, I think that there's a lot of language that we don't correct that in, in its origins are under the like presumption that blackness is inferior to whiteness, right? Like yep, yep. that happened to you because black people are whatever. And then your child is able to interpret for that. Okay. Black people are bad or blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. That's my first thing. Language is important. Um, also their culture is important. So, um, and also realizing that whiteness is a culture too. Okay. Yep. yep. Um, and that whether or not you think that you have some kind of cultural practices or whatever, you do, okay? You know, uh, there are things, that I, my husband is a black man. He was raised in um, a very black community in North Philadelphia. 
And there are things that I do with him. I'll be like, let's watch the sound of music. And he's like, the what? Like, that is not <laughs> anywhere in the cultural practices of what he grew up in, right? And so whether or not you think, the reason why we don't think whiteness has a culture is because it's the standard. Yeah. The reason yep. why it's the standard is because of white supremacy. So, um, preach. <laughs> basically, um, yeah, that. Okay. So, <laughs> culture is important. So, hair is so important. That's one thing that I see adoptive parents getting wrong so much. Um, it is so important, guys. I cannot stress how important it is. Um, and it's, it's, Again, it's more than hair. It's a cultural practice to care for one's hair. Um, and if you want your Black child to be accepted into a Black community and be embraced by a Black community, and you're sending them out into this world with janky hair, they are not going to be accepted by that community. You are going to make them feel ostracized by probably the white community that you're living in and the Black community that they're trying to, to enter into. Um, another thing with hair, don't let anybody touch your black child's hair. Yeah. Um, just don't do it. It's not rude if you tell them to stop. Um, and if you are unsure about that, I want you to look up human zoos. Okay? Mm. Look that up. Human zoos. All right. I'm just leaving it at that because I know I'm, I'm on a time crunch. No, it's, it's good. It's good. <laughs> I love it. Next thing, um, you know, music is super important. Hip hop is not only music, it is culture. I know some people have issues with hip hop. They don't want their children to listen to certain things. Um, if you are uncomfortable with what's being said in hip hop, you should be uncomfortable with the way that we have treated black Americans in this country, because what it is, is showing you yourself. Okay. It is showing you that we have allowed black people to live in ghettos and have to deal with you know, lack of, you know, just everything, just, it's, we're not taking care of black people like we should. Yeah. And what, one thing that hip hop is such a gift to white people, I just was talking about this yesterday, but it is such a gift to the white listener because it is showing you how black people see you. Mm. It is giving you a open door into black gaze, right? How we see you. It's giving you an opportunity to experience double consciousness. So basically what you're having access to is the fact that you can um, not only see um, the Black experience as it is from their perspective, but you can also see how Black people see white people. Mm. Yeah, it's good. Okay. Also, we listen to a lot of hip hop in this house and a lot of inappropriate music in general because... And I'm just putting this out there because people who know us in real life already know this about us. Uh, my husband is a music producer and he primarily works on pop and hip hop and rap. And so that is very much a part of the culture in our home at mm. all times. <laughs> Honestly, uh, I talk to a lot of transracial adoptees. I do a lot of like an identity coaching with transracial adoptees and um, adult transracial adoptees. And the, a big Thing that I'm grateful to again to my white adoptive parents for was they did not censor the music choices that I had. I love, 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 love hip hop. And if I didn't have the voice that I have, I would be a rapper, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I would. I love it. And because I the reason why I love it was because it was a, it was one of the only places I saw myself growing up. Mm. And so I I just feel like if you don't allow your children to listen to that music you might be doing them a disservice because it's, and now there's not every rapper is talking about things 
that are, you know, going to be speaking about identity or race, but a lot of them are, a lot of them are. Um, And so if you're looking for rappers that do that, I'm a big fan, Chance the Rapper. I'm a big fan of older Kanye. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Kendrick, J. Cole. I like any kind of conscious rap. So even like old, like Common, Tribe Called Quest. Yeah. Yeah. Any, uh, any of those. And then of course, of course I like, um, for women, I like Rhapsody. Uh, I do like Cardi. She's kind of, you know, eh, I love Cardi. I love her, but I don't know, like for the kids. Yeah. For the kids. But it's funny. It's funny though, because I, I'm a, I'm a runner. Well, I, I say I'm a runner. I go for runs like once a week. I'm not an avid runner, but I'll go for runs. And sometimes I feel like God reveals things to me while I'm running. But mm-hmm. when I tell people the story about how God reveals something to me, I'm like, but y'all, you need to know this was not like a holy spiritual moment. I had Cardi B in my ears when God revealed something to me. So it's like, I'm, I always tell people, I'm like, it's not as spiritual and holy as it sounds, but <laughs> I love, I love her. And that's the kind of music that I need to motivate me because otherwise I just don't want to run. Yeah. Okay. I am curious. So I know that when I read up on your story and was getting to know you a little bit, you had talked about in your own adoption story, not really having room for the grief, Mm. not really having room to be sad about the fact that you were adopted and the fact that you don't know your birth parents and didn't have a relationship with them. And I sat with that for a little bit and I wondered how could your parents have and all adoptive parents do a better job leaving room for grief and honoring it rather than just making adoption all positive and almost like a, well, you should be grateful mentality. Like we gave you this amazing life and it's like, yes, we gave you this amazing life or we're giving you this amazing life, but that doesn't take away that you don't have the relationships that God intends for all of us to have, I think. Right. Um, Hmm. Well, I think it's hard because I had a closed adoption to even, I think that that in itself, not saying, I don't, I don't think that open adoption solves all the problems. It's not what I'm saying, but I think that, um, because my biological parents were so unseen and unheard, uh, that was a big, I think, contributing factor to the fact that I didn't feel like I could grieve them because we never talked about them. Why would we, you know? Um, so maybe talking about them, maybe acknowledging the fact that they exist and that I might be feeling feelings about them or I might not be And like, what's, you know, uh, there was just no conversation had about, about them, except for when I brought it up myself. Um, and that was probably when I was older and like interested in searching for them. But I remember like feeling a lot of grief, especially for my biological father. Um, and that was because again, I don't know if it's just the way that I'm set up, but I desperately wanted a relationship with a black person desperately wanted. And so he was the representation of that black person. He was the black man who was going to teach me how to be black and teach me how to deal with all these white people. And I was, you know, so he was like this, I idolized him. Um, And so I missed him for that purpose. Um, And it would have been nice to have been able to 
to express that. So I guess maybe just leaving room. I saw an idea once that somebody suggested where they let their child, whenever they thought about their birth mother, like write them a letter and um, keep it somewhere safe that they could maybe someday give it to them or not. That to me was really, I would have, as someone who loves writing, that would have been something that I think I really would have liked. I saw that. I saw that online, like a box, like it was almost like a birth mother box. And every time your child like wanted to, yeah, talk to their birth mom or, 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 or father. Okay. This applies to both, but, um, yeah. they could put things in the box that maybe they were proud of that they wanted to show them someday, or if, you know, if they ever got the chance to meet them or every adoption story is different. So, right. but, but the, the, the purpose of what I read online, it sounds like what you're sharing right now was that they get to express it. They get to get it out. And then, yeah, maybe one day they'll be able to give that box with all those things to that parent or not, but it's not even about that. It's about allowing them the space to feel their emotions, to acknowledge it and honor it. And so I love that idea, um, for, for the future if we adopt. Yeah. And another thing I think is just like, don't just say it's a safe space for him to talk, but like actually show them that it's a safe place. Like, and that's what something I was gonna say earlier, like it's so important that adoptive parents do their own work, their own healing work, whatever that looks like for you. Because my mom is like one of the, she is, I mean, she always told me, you know, you can tell me anything. And I know that she meant that in her heart, but I did not feel like I could tell her anything. I knew that if I told her I'm missing my birth mother, it would break her in two. Her heart would break. She wouldn't be able to handle it. Like I was very aware. I made a post about this too before. I'm just like how fragile my mom was and how that was not a topic that I, and I don't know what it was. I don't know what was said or, or even just like faces that she made when I would make comments, like, or like, I know when I met my birth parents, there was a lot of like trepidation of like, but you won't forget about us, right? Like even just, that's like, ha ha ha, like making light of something, but it's like, you mean that though. Yeah. You, you really worry that um, you're not gonna be enough for me. Um, and and that's, you know, it's unfair to, to the child because and I'm not saying those feelings aren't valid. Like if you are a parent who's feeling like insecure and feeling like uh, that scares me, right? I don't want my child to think that, to, to, to not want me to be their mom or I love them. You know, um, if you're feeling that that's valid, but it's not your child's job to fix that. It's your right. job to fix that or your therapist or, you know, whatever you need to do. Amen. <laughs> Because what ends up happening is it becomes the burden of the child. And I felt unfairly like I had to protect my mom's feelings a lot. And even now, I sometimes am afraid that she's going to listen to this mm. and it's going to hurt her feelings. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, so I, that's something I've noticed in, in the world of fostering, in my experience so far, I've learned that my ego is one of the biggest uh, I'll call it a risk factor mm-hmm. in my relationship with my kids because there are times, and I've talked to other foster parents about this. There are times where after a year of raising a child and giving them the world and loving them so well, they will still look you in the eyes and say, 
I don't want to be here. I want to go home to my mommy. Right. And it will hurt and it will hurt so badly and so deeply. But like you just said, this is why I go to counseling and this is why I do my inner work because they're not saying I'm not thankful for you. I don't love you, but that's what you hear. If your ego is not in check, I think, yeah, you have, you have to hold space for the fact that I can love you with all I've got. I can give you everything. I could give you the world and I will never, my love and all I can give you will never diminish your desire for love and time and relationship from your birth parents. And so when people, when, when I hear some people say like, oh, anyone can foster and adopt. I actually say, no, not anyone can foster and adopt. And I do believe it's a calling. And I do believe that there are some people who would cause more harm than good. And, and so that's why, even though I have this dream and this desire for more people to step up and foster and adopt, I really think it only can happen it should only happen after they have done their inner work and continue. I mean, it's not like it ever ends. Like yeah, the inner work continues. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. So all this is just coming up for me as we're, as we're talking about leaving room yeah. for the grief and yeah, oh, it's good stuff. I'm yeah. curious. I think I already know the answer to this, but because there's so much on the internet about it right now, I would love your honest opinion. Sure after your own experience and the people that you encounter today, are you against transracial parenting? Or do you believe that if the parents like, like myself, for example, are pursuing cultural competence and are, are continuing to listen and learn from black and brown people, can we do it? Well, can we parent a child of a different ethnicity? Well, or do you think for, for whatever reason it shouldn't happen at all? Um, Okay, here's the thing with this question. It's a hard question to answer and to ask a transracial adoptee because my answer, again, is going to impact my family, right? If I say, when you ask this question, the question that my adoptive parents hear is, do you wish your parents didn't adopt you, Mm -hmm. right? And that's not what you're asking, but that's what they hear. And I know that. Right. And so it's hard to answer this question. And it's, it's also that question that they're thinking is impossible for me to answer. Because, OK, if we're talking about adoption and foster care, the child has no agency in the choices being made in their life. OK, mm-hmm. their parents make choices that have consequences. The adoptive parents make choices that have consequences. The child is unable to make any choices. So when asking like. It's just like, I can't answer that. I don't know a reality other than this reality. And I can't say, um, oh, I wish it was different because I don't know. I don't know what growing up with my birth mother would have been like. I don't know. Like I can speculate based on like my half siblings and stuff, but I don't know what that would have been like. And it's, and do I wish that I didn't know and love and have relationships with my parents or with my brothers? Absolutely. Like I love them. I don't want that to go anywhere. However, if we're speaking from like a holistic approach and taking all of that context out and just talking about, do I think white adoptive parents can transracially parent black children or brown children or Asian children well, I struggle with that, (laughs) okay? I think that in a lot of cases, I am probably against 
transracial parenting. And, and, and I don't really like putting the question in the context of for or against, because it's so either or, and I don't think that's how life is. There's nuance, right? But I think that a lot of white adoptive parents um, are totally oblivious to the dangers of whiteness, totally oblivious. And um, not white people, but whiteness. So um, when you're raised in whiteness, which most traditional adoptees are, there are not that many traditional, I mean, there are now, I think, a new wave of more liberal, transracially adoptive white parents who are trying to be culturally competent and trying to grow, like, raise their children in diverse areas and trying to just, you know, do their own anti-racism work. But I think that the majority of transracially adopted parents still are not anywhere near any of that because a lot of it happens in the white evangelical church. And in my opinion, that's one of the most insidious perpetuators of white supremacy um, because it doesn't acknowledge (laughs) it at all. So, and it's still operating from a very like white saviorist mentality and just a lot of problematic stuff. So that's what makes it hard for me to be like, yeah, white people go for it. Because I don't know what kind of white person is listening to this. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that makes sense. History tells me, and my own personal experience tells me that I should be apprehensive to trust white people. Let's just be very clear about that. And so when I think about the black child that could potentially be put in your care, that's what I'm thinking about when I answer this question. I'm not thinking about you. I'm not thinking about your feelings. Yep. I'm not saying, oh, you know, Amanda's a bad white person. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is history and my own personal experience tells me that I should probably watch out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's what makes me apprehensive to be like, totally cool with it go for it because I think again um and another thing that also informs this answer is I work with so many transracially adopted adults helping them to love themselves and I see the damage the emotional psychological damage that has created them to have such a negative racial identity um and it just like makes me very like hesitant to be like, you guys are doing it right out there. Because <laughs> from what I've seen, no. But then I'm, I'm interested to see what this next maybe generation or next two generations from now, what those traditional adoptees are saying, like what their voices, are they gonna say, oh, my mom, you know, was doing all this great stuff and I don't feel any of that. Or maybe they're saying, my mom was overkilling with the blackity black, black stuff and she needed to chill. <laughs> Um, you know, like, I'm interested to see what they will say, but from what I've seen thus far, um, that that's what may, I guess makes me lean more towards the against side. Okay. No, that's fair. That's fair. I, I love it. That's no, that's a, it is such a densely layered, yeah. uh, complex conversation, but I appreciate that. And I think it's important. And I'm just grateful that we are like, I love that you said, you know, you'll be interested to see what, what comes of the gen- next generation and two generations from now, because we are seeing some changes, at least from my perspective, I'm seeing some changes, uh, which, which are in a positive direction, I guess. Yeah. I think too, I want to go back to something you said about how, like, you know, the kids don't have a choice. Absolutely spot on. I'm not arguing that point. I will say 
in foster care with children who are 10, 11, 12 years old, they very much get a choice in terms Mm. of if permanency, if their parental rights are terminated and the foster family is offering permanency. I know that in most States, not all, they will at, at, I think it's about 10 years old is when they start to say like, okay, you know, is this what you want? However, even if they were to ask, um, let's say I have a child whose parental rights have just been, the parental rights have just been terminated and I'm, I'm eager and excited to give them permanency forever. Maybe they're eager and excited at the thought of forever, but I I have to wonder if deep down that child has any like inkling or desire at all to first see if there's a black family that wants them. Mm. That's something that I've just been curious about and wrestling with without going into the detail of our current kids and our current life. But I think, yeah, that was all to say my husband and I have said that if we have children in our care, whose parental rights get terminated before we just jump to say, yes, we'll keep them forever. I really, really, really want to, as best we can find out what our kids want. Yeah. And, and like you said, not just tell them, but show them that it is a safe space for them to say and to reveal maybe some of their true desires. If that doesn't mean staying with a white family forever or, or, you know, we're navigating all of that right now. So we're just figuring it out, you know? Um, oh gosh, this has been so fun. I'm like all over the place, but (laughs) Um, and I wonder how many transracial adoptees would actually feel comfortable, like really how many would feel comfortable being like, I would prefer, or, or, you know, transracial foster children be able to even say, I would prefer a black, like, I doubt that there are very many white homes that are fostering an environment where they would be able to say that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I do give credit to my parents because, um, I say a whole lot. And they still put up with me. So um, <laughs> <laughs> they have done a lot of things well. And I know that I've, I said one thing uh, a while back of like, uh, my parents never saw me being a disruptor as they never tried. Once I was, especially once I was an adult, they never tried to silence that. They were always proud of the fact that I was a critical thinker and that I questioned the status quo and that I wanted things like equality and fairness. and um, they were never scared by that. Even when I say things that they might not, that they might not agree with. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's so good. This is, this Mm -hmm. has been great. And there's so much about you, Hannah, that we didn't even get to talk about. Obviously we focused on adoption, race, identity, things like that, but let's just do some rapid fire, fun questions to wrap up our time. Cause that's fun. Um, you're a mom, you've got two kids. What's your favorite part of motherhood? Um, and they're both biological yours, correct? Yes, they are. Um, my favorite thing about motherhood, I'm a big kid. So I like to um, play with my kids. Like I like to pretend with them and- like, I am very make jealous. Up, make up games with them. Again, my seven, this is coming out now, right? Um, make up games with them. And um, you know, it's just, it is just a- uh, I like that part of it. And I think that I actually, I think most dads are probably more on this side of the spectrum of like, they're the more playful. And I feel like my husband is, he's a, he's a one. 
So he is very like the rules. And I'm like, oh, rules were made to be broken, you know, like, <laughs> um, so that's I, fun. I get to be a kid with, I get to experience my childhood again with them. And I love that. That's sweet. Okay. What's the hardest thing about motherhood for you? Parenting is so hard. Okay. Can we just say that? I know that I just gave a lot of you guys a whole lot of advice, right? I don't give you that advice with the naivete that um, parenting is just some easy walk in the park and decisions are just easy to make. And no, like I'm also dealing with my own stuff with my own kids. Um, I'm making decisions too. Like we're living in a city right now and I'm struggling with like, is this the right place to raise my kid? Like we all are dealing with that. And so parenting is hard. It's hard. And being an adult is hard and making decisions that could impact someone's life is hard. Okay. Yeah. 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 Biggest responsibility ever. (laughs) Right. You are responsible for like somebody's emotional, physical, mental, psychological, financial, everything, well-being. And that's a whole lot. Yeah, for sure. What, uh, particularly during this quarantine time, what's been the best part for your family? Like how have you guys thrived during this time and what's been the hardest and the worst part of it? Um, we spent, I mean, family time is so important to us already. It's part of like the culture of our family. We, we always have like certain Saturdays are typically like family days. They've been that day since that way since we've, you know, had Caleb. Um, but we just get more of that time. Um, I get to, I'm an educator, uh, or I was an educator. Uh, and so I get to like have some of that creative education, getting out my planner and, and getting my whiteboards out and, you know, being teacher mommy, even though Caleb swears that I'm not a real teacher and <laughs> real school but you're like I, I have a master's in this right I am, okay I've got a debt to prove that I I know what this is about uh, but so I've enjoyed that and then the hardest part for me uh I am such a people person and zoom is cool but I miss my friends I miss like going out to eat and also I realized even in my parenting so much of what I do is activity based like we go to the library we go to the park we go you know we're we're in this group and we're in that group and I'm realizing how much of my parenting I rely on other people like it's part of like a village mentality I guess and I um all by myself it's been really hard and and it's been kind of pointing out to me a lot of things about my parenting that I'd like to improve. Like I'd like to be more present and I'd like to, to, you know, not have to distract myself with things. Um, and so that's been, that's been kind of hard, but kind of good too. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Okay. Very last question. As we wrap up here, what is one thing you can't stop talking about? Anything goes. Hmm. It could be a TV show you've binged recently. It could be a passion that keeps you up at night. It could be anything. Hmm. I love The Office. <laughs> we do I too. Love the office. I know a lot of people, there are a lot of Black people in this world who have issues with The Office. And so sometimes whenever I say that, I'm like, hmm, you know, but I love The Office. And it's totally my sense of humor, like the dry, uh, sarcastic, sense of humor, kind of dark, all that. 
my husband, my husband watches, has watched the office in full, like over 20 times now. Uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm right there with him. The Absolutely. number, the number of hours he's put into that show is, is insane to me. He's also a seven on the Enneagram and y'all seem a lot alike. Um, and particularly he was telling me, cause I've only seen I mean, I've seen quite a few episodes because I'm married to him, but I never watched it all the way start to finish. So anyways, I'm not as familiar. But one thing he said to me was, this could ne- this would never fly today. Like if it, were, if it were made today, because there are so many racist, uh, sexist, uh, just really offensive and not woke <laughs> language and scenes, but it's hilarious. It's so funny. And um, anyways- Michael Scott. And I also feel like it's an accurate representation of what happens. And also I feel like they're, they're not making those jokes. Like it's okay. They're making those jokes. Like this cannot be really happening right now, but it actually happens. Right. Um, So I think that I agree with him that because of, um, however people feel about, you know, PC culture, whatever, I don't know. I always like that phrase, but I feel like, you know, some of those jokes absolutely could not be made. Totally. Totally. Yeah. But I'm right there. I watch it like every night. It's, (laughs) it's your thing. It really is. You need something lighthearted after what you spend your days doing. Exactly. It's like, okay, that was a stressful day. The office. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. This was really informative. Um, you're, you, you're so eloquent in the way that you just approach these hard conversations. I really appreciate it. And I know so many of my listeners will too. So thank you. Of course. Thanks again for having me. 